Understandably, nations have poured billions into shoring up health services, but the recovery, now that lockdowns are being lifted, needs to take into consideration our other global emergency, climate change. So there's a big opportunity to retrofit buildings and homes across this country, to clean up our transportation sector with electric vehicles, to clean up our electricity system with wind and solar. In the near term, we have to think of not only what are our goals, but how do we address the barriers to make sure we're making equitable investments so that we can actually reach those goals together. Hi, this is Julia Piper, host and producer of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. This is the first episode in a new monthly series we're producing on the path to economic recovery amid COVID-19, as we stay on the path to net zero emissions by 2050. This series, which we're calling Relief, Rescue, Rebuild, is sponsored by the Washington, D.C.-based think tank Third Way, which is working to support government action to combat climate change. Now, the song you just heard was created for political climate by the very talented AY Music. AY is a former X Factor contestant who went on to launch the Battery Tour, a sustainable music festival and global movement actively bringing renewable energy solutions to people in need all around the world. You can hear the original version of this song, Save the Planet, on AY SoundCloud page, or find more information on his Instagram at AYMusic. That's music with a K and not a C. Okay, so Relief, Rescue, Rebuild. Why are we calling this series that? Well, we're going to be hearing those words a lot in the coming months and likely years. The reality is that as weary as we may be of the virus, it's having a severe impact on the U.S. economy, one that the country will be recovering from for a long time. Earlier this year, we launched a series called The Path to Zero, which was designed to explore the technologies and policies needed to rapidly drive down carbon emissions. Episodes featured speakers such as former Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, as well as union leaders, environmental justice advocates, and more. Now we're shifting our focus from the path to zero to the path to economic recovery and what that could look like with equitable, low-carbon solutions baked in. Now, make no mistake, we are still in an economic crisis. In early July, the U.S. Labor Department reported that the total number of people claiming unemployment insurance stood at nearly 32 million. That means roughly one in five American workers are currently collecting unemployment benefits. And that's just the jobs and economic impact. Say nothing of the lives lost and those suffering with symptoms of the virus. 
But while there's a robust conversation taking place on crafting relief and rescue plans for the American people, policy discussions have also expanded to focus on the need to rebuild. You've probably heard about the concept of a green recovery or a clean economic rescue plan or proposals to build back better. There's been a lot of ink spilled on these ideas, but what do they really mean? What are the best ideas being put forward by economists, policymakers, grassroots leaders, and other experts? What kinds of actions will produce the best results in terms of economic growth, improved health, lower emissions, and greater resilience? Which, if done right, could not only help America build back from the current crisis, but also lay a foundation for weathering through the next one. In our first episode of the Relief Rescue Rebuild series, we're excited to welcome back Leah Stokes. Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, author of the new book, Short-Circuiting Policy, and an all-around brilliant person. On this show, Leah explains how she defines a green recovery, why she believes it's absolutely necessary for lawmakers to focus on, and what she would put in her own green stimulus bill. Then, in the second half of the show, we turn to a joint interview with Ani Blair, Executive Director at Link Houston, an organization that advocates for robust and equitable transportation networks, and Alex Laska, Policy Advisor for Transportation at Third Way. In this discussion, we focus on clean transportation policies specifically, and the need to fix existing issues first before tackling new projects. While you're listening, be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch all of Political Climate's Relief, Rescue, Rebuild episodes, as well as our weekly shows with my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. And now, over to Leah Stokes. Hi, Leah. I'm delighted to have you back on the podcast. And this time we aren't playing a game with climate policy like we did last time. We're, we're talking about a very real set of issues that you have been writing about. You've written several pieces on the concept of a green stimulus in recent weeks, and we will link to those pieces in our show notes. I want to start by asking, what was your main message there? Why do you think this topic of a green recovery is so important for the country to focus on amid the COVID-19 pandemic when there's just so much else for leaders to juggle? Well, we have a big economic crisis on our hands because of the COVID pandemic. And we have to be asking ourselves, how do we want to rebuild the economy? You know, the Joe Biden campaign has been talking about this idea of build back better, that it's not just about rebuilding how it was, it's about rebuilding with more equality, uh, with more clean air for people to breathe. And so when we think about this crisis, it's also an opportunity. And uh, this is what the Obama administration faced as well. When they first took office, they were facing a big economic crisis and they had an opportunity to do green stimulus. And in many ways, if you want to find the climate policy of the Obama administration, it was the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act, the, the Stimulus Act that they passed. So We need federal investment to rebuild our energy system, to clean up the way our economy runs. And as tragic as this moment is for so many Americans, it also presents an opportunity to create jobs and to rebuild our infrastructure in a way that's cleaner and better. So I feel like a green stimulus is a a win-win in that it it actually creates jobs and uh, it can also help us deal with other crises like the climate crisis and air pollution. When we say green stimulus, what exactly is that in your view? Does that mean just 
any infrastructure project that maybe took into account environmental factors on a more in a, in a broader way? Or does it have to be explicitly carbon reducing or something like that? How are you defining this? Well, a green stimulus can do a lot of things. It can certainly reduce carbon pollution, but it can also clean up our air and our water. And during this moment of reckoning for this country on racial injustice, we are all being reminded of how much we are exporting our pollution into black neighborhoods. There's a lot of research that shows that black children have asthma rates way higher than white children, that Black mothers who are pregnant are dealing with miscarriages or stillborn births at much higher rates because of air pollution and heat waves from climate change. And so the fossil fuel economy creates sacrifice zones, places where we can put our dirty stuff and just have other people, uh, namely black people, indigenous people, Hispanic people, have that dirty infrastructure in their communities. And so it's not just about carbon emissions, it's also about pollution. But what we really need to be asking ourselves is, do we want to have a society that creates energy in a way that poisons people, that leads to stillborn births? I mean, that doesn't seem like that's the best way that we can make our energy system. And so green stimulus is an opportunity to take a step back and to say, hey, we can fuel our electricity system with clean energy from wind and solar, for example. Um, You know, we can change the way that our trains are run so that they're not just running on diesel, but that they're also running on batteries um, charged by a clean grid. And the same can be the case for our cars. We can ask ourselves, do we want want to be breathing in air pollution when we're cooking dinner at home because we're burning fossil gas in our kitchens and our kids are breathing that in? Or do we want our homes to be electrified so that we can cook without poisoning ourselves? And so there's a big opportunity to retrofit buildings and homes across this country, to clean up our transportation sector with electric vehicles, to clean up our electricity system with wind and solar. And all of that is going to take federal investment money, which will translate into a lot of new jobs. Just think about the home retrofit piece. We could have companies in every city and town and county across this country that are set up to help people get rid of toxic fossil gas in their homes, to uh, do energy efficiency so that their homes are more comfortable and they use less electricity to heat and cool. And all of those jobs cannot be taken overseas. You need somebody in the U.S. to be coming and retrofitting your home. So there's so much work that we can be doing to make our air cleaner and healthier for everybody and to create jobs in the process. And I think that's really what the green stimulus is about. Yeah, that piece about home energy retrofits resonates with me because my husband and I actually just bought a house here in Los Angeles, which we're excited about. And so I went down a super long rabbit hole all about induction stoves and how they work and the kind of cookware you need. And good news is you don't burn yourself. They're apparently not very hot to touch. So a little added bonus there. (laughs) Yeah. And you don't have to continue to give your money to the gas utility, SoCal Gas, which I am also a customer of just up the road in Santa Barbara, um, which we now know has been spending our customer money on lobbying against climate action, which is not even allowed. And SoCal Gas as a utility is refusing to open up its books to oversight. This is some breaking news that Sammy Roth at uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, just came out with yesterday. So, you know, if we can all get off 
fossil gas in our homes, then we don't have to be funding these terrible utilities that are holding back climate action. Yeah, and this is a good time to mention that you recently released a book tackling many of these issues, these issues around utilities and corruption, or at least abuse of power uh, in the energy system. And it's called Short-Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. And we'll hopefully draw on that a little bit more going forward. But I I wanted to come back to the green stimulus concept and, and, and ask you, you know, you mentioned communities uh, that are already being disproportionately affected by climate change and air pollution, heat. And I guess my question is, we haven't done anything about that to this date, or at least, you know, it's been happening in fits and starts, but there has not been a national effort to solve these issues. So why now amid a crisis do you think this is possible? Because there will be a question about where government dollars go? What what research lab gets the funds to embark on a new technology uh, research project versus fixing it first in communities that have already been impacted negatively by the issues that you eloquently outlined there? So I don't know, do you see a tension there around where's the political will going to come from to actually fix these issues that no one's been willing to fix for a very long time? And then how does it actually break down where the, the spending dollars go? Because there's going to be lots of demands and needs coming from various places that are aligned, but you know, there's, there's finite resources. Well, let's be clear. Delay when it comes to climate action or cleaning up our air and water from pollution comes squarely from the fossil fuel industry and the electric utility industry. These are companies that make profit by delaying the transition. If you have invested in a coal plant with a lot of debt on it, you need to keep that coal plant operating so you can pay off that investment. If you are a fossil fuel company like Exxon or Chevron, and you're holding a lot of infrastructure and leases with gas in the ground or oil in the ground, you know, you want to be able to extract those resources to make money. That's the entire way that you make profit. And so it literally pays you back to delay climate action. And we know this because the fossil fuel industry and electric utilities for decades funded climate denial organizations like the Global Climate Coalition, which, you know, spread misinformation. They spent billions of dollars lobbying Congress to block climate legislation like the Waxman-Markey bill. You can read about this in Matt O'Mildenberger's research or Robert Brule's research or Naomi Oreskes, Eric Conway, Jeffrey Supran. I mean, there's an enormous amount of evidence that shows that this is what's happening. So that's who's delaying us. It's not, um, when we talk about political will, why don't we have it, et cetera, that's a very fluffy concept. What we really should be talking about is political power, which is what the fossil fuel industry and the electric utilities have and the profits that they make by delaying action. When it comes to equity, I think you raise great questions, Julia. I mean, the Biden campaign uh, came out with a climate, expanded climate plan last week. And one of the really key parts of it was an environmental justice platform that really uh, increased its commitments. There have been campaigns in New York State and California to try to ensure that some of the investment funds is, are going to frontline communities of color that are on the front lines of air pollution and climate impacts. And in New York State, they won a victory, the New York Renews campaign last year, to get 35 to 40% of the funds for those communities. And in California, there's been a similar law put in place. And so what Biden committed to, which several other of the candidates for uh, president when the Democratic primary was happening also committed to, was 40% of investments 
being put in frontline disadvantaged communities, communities of color. And the plan also included a whole uh, mapping exercise to figure out, you know, where is this pollution falling? Where are the climate impacts falling? Who are these people who are bearing the burden of all the negative parts of our energy system and how can we make sure that when we clean it up we're cleaning it up for those communities first and foremost so i think that's a really exciting number uh it really shows that the biden campaign is listening to environmental justice activists because the 40 percent number is not pulled from the air it's pulled from environmental justice campaigns so i think it's exciting that the conversation the democratic party has been having for the past two years has gotten to a place where people can understand that racial justice is climate justice and climate justice is racial justice. These are not separate issues. If we want to have equity, we have to be thinking about who is breathing in the dirty air and who is on the front lines of climate change. And that is overwhelmingly Black, Indigenous, and Hispanic communities. Yeah, I mean, I really hope that, as you say, the Biden campaign and and any politician is interacting directly with those communities. I've just learned through this podcast and having various conversations that, you know, for instance, Nathaniel Smith, who's who's based in Atlanta and works for the Partnership for Southern Equity, was saying, look, the, even the clean energy industries leave us out. They're not necessarily involving us in decisions of where their technologies are going. It's hard for them. They're startups. They may not have the bandwidth to deploy projects that don't make the highest return on investment. But it's definitely an issue that I think everyone has to reconcile with um, on on every side of this. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's been lots of evidence that our federal incentives for wind, solar and electric vehicles are overwhelmingly going to white people. And that is not ideal. I mean, we need to be sharing the wealth. And this is actually why the Green New Deal presents climate change, income inequality, and racial injustice as connected crises, because they really are. You know, some people might say, I don't understand why do these have to do anything with one another? Well, if your climate policy is simply raising the electricity bills of poor black people who are struggling to pay their bills in the first place, or even poor white people who are who are not getting uh, their wages increased because we've had massive growing income inequality in this country. And meanwhile, your incentives are only going to rich white people to buy electric vehicles or solar panels, you know, then the system of climate policy can actually in an unintentional way, exacerbate income inequality. And we don't want that to happen. We want to be dealing with racial injustice, income inequality, and climate justice at the same time. And so I think a lot of us have learned about just how tied these issues are to one another. And, and I have this paper that I wrote with Parrish Burquist, uh, who's at Georgetown University, and Matt O'Mildenberger, who's my colleague at UC Santa Barbara. And we actually did a, a survey of the public and we said, do you want climate change to be dealt with alone or should it be integrated with economic policy and social policy and deal with racial issues just like the Green New Deal proposes? And and what we find is actually the public wants Congress to be taking this intersectional approach that tackles these 
linked crises together. And in fact, it's the most popular to do that amongst black and Hispanic Americans. And also, I'll tell you that if you do any public opinion poll, you find that black and Hispanic Americans are more concerned about the climate crisis. And that's because they see it every day. They see the consequences of our fossil fuel-based energy system. And so if we really want to pass these laws, we have to make the coalition bigger. We have to bring in everybody. And that includes black and Hispanic and indigenous Americans. And so um, I just think that the idea behind uh, the Green New Deal is actually a winning formula when it comes to the public. It may not be a winning formula in Congress because of the influence of the fossil fuel industry and electric utilities. But if Congress was really interested in doing what the public wanted. The fact is, green stimulus is really popular. The Green New Deal is really popular. We can tackle these crises together if Congress would just listen to what the public actually wants. Well, it's been interesting to see the politics of this play out in kind of a classic way, right? Like, Politicians hate the term the Green New Deal. Some of them do because it's owned by a particular wing of the Democratic Party or by progressives more generally. But many of those concepts have found their way into all kinds of legislation and have been appropriated uh, by moderates and even some Republicans. Even a group this week of, uh, of, of Senate Republicans urged Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, to include clean energy in the COVID-19 recovery. So a green stimulus, if you will. So, so much of this, I think, is about the packaging and how it plays politically. But these concepts are resonating increasingly across the board. I think you're right, Julia. And look, I'm not attached to the term Green New Deal. I'm attached to justice as a concept. I'm attached to progress. And so whatever it needs to be called to get some more Democrats to support it, to get some more Republicans on board, I'm for it. I mean, I'm not for things like liability giveaways to fossil fuel companies that have been promoting climate denial for decades and who should be held accountable for that action. I'm not for that. But I am for creating a big coalition that tackles income inequality, racial injustice, and climate justice uh, together. And here's the fact, just like we've been seeing massive increases in support for racial justice and for the Black Lives Matter movement in the past couple months, the last two years, we've seen the same thing for climate change. We've seen massive increases in support, uh, including in a bipartisan way, particularly with young Republicans and with many independents. And so the fact is that a lot of the Republican Party is offside with their own base, including with young Republicans who want to have a livable planet for their own future. And so, um, you know, this is a wedge issue right now. The Democrats are really starting to own the climate issue, and I think that's going to leave some some Republicans vulnerable. And hey, we haven't seen a dynamic like that in a very long time. So uh, I think it's hopeful that the climate movement, just like the movement for racial justice, is having a lot of traction with the public right now. And I think that we could see 2021 be a big year uh, for, for action on these issues. Yeah, it's hard to cover these topics as a journalist and you know, feel like you're not becoming overly political, but it, it is just true that the Democrats are owning this in a way that the Republicans are not. And so you inherently end up talking a lot about Democratic proposals. And it's not really a political issue, climate change, right? It affects us all equally. There's no uh, option to step off this planet and not be part of it. And yet the way the solutions are being framed is through this political lens, which may actually get things done faster, to your point. But it's interesting being a journalist in this era and like you know, there's no way to be balanced about this because the information is just not available on one side of the ledger. 
Yeah, and we should ask why that is. And I'll tell you, that is exactly what I asked in my book, Short-Circuiting Policy. And if you go back a little more than a decade to, let's say, 2006, 7, 8, believe it or not, there were as many Republicans in the public and independents as Democrats who supported research and development funding for renewables, who supported more clean energy being built, who supported even climate change. This was actually not a partisan issue just a little more than a decade ago. Everybody knows, or I don't know if everybody knows, but certainly your listeners would know about the Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich ad where they're sitting together on the couch and they're saying bipartisanship is climate change. You know, we can get along on this issue. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves what happened. And I think we actually have to start asking very hard questions about the money in politics from fossil fuel companies and electric utilities and how it's unfortunately twisting the Republican Party away from a party of conservation and protection towards um, a really corrupt uh, institution. And uh, I think there's going to be a reckoning on that in 2021. That really puts in this current moment because so right now the government support that's come from Congress has uh, you know been, been more general in nature support for individuals, workers, and then companies through these loans. And many of those companies have been fossil fuel companies. We're looking at two to six billion dollars in Paycheck Protection Plan support from Congress since the COVID crisis began for fossil fuel companies. Clean energy companies have received other kinds of government support during this crisis, but it's not at the same scale and it's not in the same tailored way that the fossil fuel industry had. So that brings us back to the green stimulus because this concept has not been put into action so far. There's been a lot of thought leadership on it, I think, from people, including yourself, but we're not seeing Congress really tackle it in a meaningful way. And I've even heard some Democrats say it's not quite the right time because there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain in the country right now and a lot of immediate need for uh, paycheck support, for instance. So how does this effectively work its way into the real world conversation from the concept papers into law? What do you think? Look, we're up against a lot with the Trump administration, um, and it's a very cozy relationship between uh, people like the Secretary of Energy, Dan Brulette, uh, the Treasury Secretary, uh, Mnuchin, and the fossil fuel industry. I mean, these people have ties to the industry. They make statements about how they need to specifically help out the industry. For example, Energy Secretary Dan Brulette said in April that we would need to get lending closer to 200 or 250 million to specifically help the fossil fuel sector. And he said that after he'd met with them, with representatives of the industry behind closed doors. And let's be real, the Fed is supposed to be an independent agency. It's supposed to be lending money to companies that are not doing well because of the pandemic. That's what this was designed as. And instead, it's clear that a lot of money, as you ex explained, Julia, is going to fossil fuel companies for debt that they already had before the pandemic began. Because a lot of companies in the fossil fuel sector were not doing well before this pandemic began. They took on a lot of debt. They were in bad financial shape. And unfortunately, um, parts of the CARES Act it seems like, are being used to prop up these fossil fuel companies. And it has nothing to do with the pandemic. It has nothing to do with keeping people employed through a real, honest paycheck protection program. And that's so frustrating because 
from my view, these kinds of bailouts to the fossil fuel sector with zero transparency. I mean, Mnuchin has literally said that he won't even tell us where the money is going. I mean, we don't even know how much money is going to the fossil fuel industry. It's so disturbing. Um, And the problem with these bailouts is that it's like lighting a pile of money on fire. That money does not get into the economy. It doesn't keep people employed. It just pays down existing debt for companies that might eventually just go bankrupt. That money disappears. You know, Joseph Stieglitz and Nicholas Stern, some really fantastic uh, economists, wrote a paper early on during the pandemic where they looked at green stimulus around the world. And how much money is being spent on green stimulus versus dirty fossil fuel bailouts. And they actually found that as many policies are green, which is only 4% of all policies, by the way, as are dirty, another 4%. So our governments are really not stepping up and using this as an opportunity to protect uh, people's lives through getting off of dirty fossil fuels. And instead, um, these are bailouts that don't stimulate economic activity. In that paper by those economists, they talk a lot about the multiplier effect, which is that if you put money into certain growing sectors of the economy, like clean energy, that money pays itself back. It multiplies throughout the economy. It keeps people employed who then go to the grocery store and buy food for their families, which keeps grocery store employers working, etc. right? This just ripples out through the economy and it keeps the economy humming along. If you instead put it towards a fossil fuel company that is in bad financial shape, that money just disappears. It doesn't move through the economy and help people keep their jobs. It just doesn't. And so, um, you know, we know from lots of research that putting money into the fossil fuel industry doesn't really create the same amount of jobs. It doesn't really create economic activity. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this administration interested in economic recovery or is it interested in helping out its friends that have, you know, bad debts from their bad decision making? And I'm very sad to say for the for the American people who are struggling right now that it seems to be the latter. It seems like there's some fishy uh, special favors going to the fossil fuel industry under the guise of stimulus spending. What if there were structured in a different way? What if there was a green stimulus that required fossil fuel companies to, say, capture methane or to capture carbon through carbon capture and sequestration technologies or to maybe even get further into the clean energy business directly, becoming developers or owners of wind and solar projects, things like that? Would those elements of a stimulus plan make it more compelling in your view? So there would be support for these big behemoth energy companies, fossil fuel companies, but they would be required to transition, if you will, in the process. Yeah. I mean, my fear is that some of these fossil fuel companies like Exxon or Chevron or Occidental Petroleum, they talk a lot about, oh, we're going to do the transition, et cetera. But if you actually look at what they're proposing, it's not a plan to tackle the climate crisis. It's minor things that would help at the margin. Things like methane reduction, uh, methane leakage reduction, energy efficiency in the supply chain. Um, But those are not things that will actually get us to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, which is the challenge that we have before us. So 
I need real talk from fossil fuel companies like Exxon, Chevron, Oxy. I need them to put their money where their mouth is, not just say, oh yeah, we're doing the transition. And there's a whole thing about how maybe Exxon has spent more money advertising its biofuels program than actually investing in its biofuels program. So these companies, if they want to be energy companies in the future, need to start changing the way they're investing internally and stop putting so much money into the dirty infrastructure that they own and start putting real money on the table for clean energy innovation and deployment. So let's end with what some of those solutions could be. You already referenced some earlier in this interview. We talked about home energy retrofits and clean energy, things like that. But to be a little more specific, would you support things like uh, a climate core uh, where young people are out all across the country deploying sustainability solutions? Is that one of your top policies? Or are you thinking more broad and systematic? If you had the power, how would you craft a green recovery? Yeah, well, that Civilian Climate Corps idea was developed by Jay Inslee when he was running for president. And uh, last week, Joe Biden's campaign adopted it. And I think it's a really cool idea that, you know, young people could work on public lands issues. They could work on carbon emissions reductions. They could help with adaptation and resilience. It's really exciting. Um, So that's a cool idea for sure. My top request always, is cleaning up the electricity system. Uh, The more I think about it, the more I realize that electricity is kind of the whole game. I mean, not entirely, but it's like 80 to 90% of the game, uh, which is stunning to me. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, if you take electricity, transportation, and buildings, you get about 70% of U.S. carbon emissions. Now, there's some parts of transportation that won't be easy to electrify, like airplanes, um, maybe some heavy duty trucking, uh, things like that. And, you know, there will be some challenges in doing it. But actually, if we clean up our electricity system and we electrify our transportation and building sectors, that gets us 70% of the way there. And then, believe it or not, uh, about half of heavy industry can also be electrified. People talk a lot about all oh, the high heat things we need fossil fuels for or some alternative with you know, this high heat. That's valid. But there's another half that you could probably just electrify. And if we do all those things, the oil and gas sector, which is another slice of the emissions, will be smaller and that will also go away. So you can actually get 80 to 90% of the problem solved just by focusing on cleaning up our electricity system. And so my number one asks uh, for whoever is listening, especially those with decision-making power in Congress, are a clean electricity standard, 100% by 2035. This was just adopted by the Biden campaign, and it is hard to describe how excited I felt when that happened. I mean, it feels like it's possible that we could actually do this and that that would just be transformational. The second thing is we're gonna clean up our transportation sector, we need a plan for cars. How are we going to get more people to buy electric vehicles? So we need incentives for that. We need those incentives to be accessible to all Americans, not just wealthy Americans. And so given that the tax credit doesn't exist for several auto manufacturers right now, uh, maybe it's a great opportunity to rethink it as a point of sale, for example, so that when people go and buy the car, they automatically get it back and they don't have to have a bunch of tax liability and be wealthy in order to afford it. Um, So that is something. And then the Biden campaign has also talked about a 
uh, cash for clunkers program for trying to get cars off the road and turn them into electric vehicles. Uh, so that's exciting. And then the third thing is buildings, the building sector. So I'm really keen on home energy retrofits. Creates a lot of jobs, fixes a big problem that's all across the economy, which is that we are using fossil gas in our homes for heating and cooling and cooking and all kinds of things. And we got to get off that stuff. So um, yeah, so those are my top requests. And I think all of these activities would create jobs because the Sierra Club of two months ago now uh, commissioned some economists, I believe from the University of Massachusetts Amherst to figure out, you know, if we were to be serious about green stimulus, if we were going to put a lot of money on the table to clean up our economy, what would that do for jobs? And what they found is that it would create 90 million jobs over a decade. So 9 million jobs every year for 10 years. If we did these things like clean up our electricity system through a clean electricity standard, clean up our cars through electric vehicle support, clean up our buildings. I mean, this would put Americans to work and we could make sure that those jobs are good jobs, that they're well paying, that they have benefits and support. So, you know, this is doable if we could only try. And uh, the good news is that climate change is so overwhelming and so urgent and so big that it's going to take all of us to get it done. And that means it's going to create a lot of jobs. So when you feel overwhelmed or stressed out by the scale of the climate crisis, flip that on its head. Think of it as an opportunity. There is so much work that has to be done. And so all Americans can participate in this transition and we can rebuild our economy in a way that centers equality, justice and clean air for everybody. Absolutely. It's good that there's opportunity baked into all of that. And it's funny because last time you were on the show, we were playing around with policy picks to decarbonize the electricity sector. Uh, Jesse Jenkins, another professor uh, in energy, was on the show, as well as my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. And you guys were competing over who could put together like the, the best policy bracket, we called it, to decarbonize the power sector. And we evaluated it on things like cost. How much would it cost the public to do this? And hilariously, uh, the the high the higher numbers that came out in that were around a hundred billion dollars, and here we are talking about trillions upon trillions. So, retrospect, hundred billion looks like a, a good bargain. Yeah, exactly. Right. Turns out I should have gone bigger and more expensive with my plan, and uh, it would have been perfectly fine in terms of the amount of money Congress has found lying around. Yeah, we just found that under the uh, couch cushions. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Leah, thank you so much for breaking down the green stimulus concept, the green recovery. This conversation is definitely not over. We are headed into a contentious election, and I think a lot of this is really going to hinge on the result of that election. It's just a fact based on the politics of the moment. So we'll be surely reading all your articles and all your papers, uh, looking to you for leadership. So thanks so much for breaking it down for us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So on the line with me now, I have Alex Laska, Transportation Policy Advisor for the Climate and Energy Program at Third Way. I also have Ani Blair, Executive Director at Link Houston. Let's start with you, Ani. I'd love to get a bit of a better sense of what Link Houston does. Can you just give us a brief overview before we get into the green stimulus and what that means? Sure, Julia. Link Houston is a nonprofit organization that advocates for equity and transportation. Our mission is to advocate for a robust and equitable transportation network so that all people can reach opportunity. 
we combine data-informed research with community engagement to shape policy issues in the Houston region that are impacted by transportation. So that includes everything from our transit system to access to affordable housing, sidewalks, bikeways, and the impact of highways on communities, especially communities of color. Great. Well, we're going to dig into Link Houston and get some more detail there about your work. But to set things up, Alex, I want to hear from you. What does a clean economy recovery or a green stimulus, all these terms we've been throwing around, building back better, what does that mean to you from a transportation perspective? How are you thinking about this topic? That's a great question to set up this conversation. You know, for the past, well, what feels like many years, but I guess has been less than half a year or so, uh, COVID-19 has, you know, really flipped a lot of things about the way we live our lives on its head. And, you know, one of the many huge impacts it's had on our lives is the economic downturn that has happened. Um, and so there is a lot of conversation uh, in Congress and, and all over on how we bring our economy back. And the important thing to think about, and this is where that phrase building back better comes from, is that we don't want to just go back exactly to the way things were. We want to make sure that whether it's investing in our transportation infrastructure to help people get around and create jobs or investing in our healthcare infrastructure to make sure we can respond to you know, other pandemics or, or medical crises in the future better. Whatever the case might be, we need to make sure that we're making things better than they were before. And this feeds into what's happening in Houston and in so many other communities perfectly when we're talking about some of the different choices we make about how we invest in our infrastructure, where we invest in our infrastructure, what kinds of infrastructure we invest in, and who that infrastructure serves. These are all questions that we need to be reckoning with, especially as Congress looks towards some possible economic stimulus or the upcoming uh, highway reauthorization bill. So this is a great time to be talking about how we can make sure we are investing in the right way to, again, build back better and make sure that we don't just go back to the transportation system we've always had, but start building a transportation system that will help us decarbonize our economy that will better connect people to jobs and economic opportunities and services, and will truly not only create jobs in the near term, but provide for long-term economic growth well into the future. When you think about the green elements or clean elements of this Building Back Better proposal and vision, what are those exactly? Can you give me some examples? Yeah, so when we're talking about clean transportation or green transportation, there are so many different ways we can make sure we're making uh, investments towards a cleaner transportation system. We could be talking about the technologies like making uh, battery electric vehicles and other zero emission vehicles uh, cheaper and better running. We could be talking about the infrastructure choices we make. And this again feeds perfectly back into the I-45 widening project. Uh, you know, we know that when we expand our highways, we're inviting more people onto the road. It sounds counterintuitive, but, you know, there's a reason the saying, if you build it, they will come, is a saying. Uh, it's sort of like if you've ever gone to a party and someone says, let's order some pizza. Uh, maybe some people want it, some people don't. But you'd better believe as soon as that pizza gets there, everybody wants some. The same is true with our infrastructure. Whatever you build, that's where you're inviting people to use. And so we've actually found that when we expand our highways, driving increases in a direct proportion to that. So if we're adding new lane miles, uh, there will be more people driving. And if you think that expanding our highways reduces congestion, the exact opposite is true. 
And why does that matter for clean transportation? Because we know that driving is the leading cause of transportation emissions. And so if we're going to decarbonize our transportation system, we have to reckon with the fuel efficiency of the vehicles, but also how much people are driving. And that's where infrastructure comes in. We have to make sure we're investing in the right kinds of projects that will help decarbonize transportation when so often uh, federal and state policy defaults towards making the situation worse by expanding our highways. So Alex just mentioned the I-45 expansion project. Um, Ani, you live in Houston. What is that project? Describe how this fits into an example of maybe what not to do from your point of view. The I-45 expansion project specifically looks at I-45 North, which stretches from downtown Houston to an area called Greens Point, which is near the Bush Intercontinental Airport. This highway project, and as it's known to our Texas Department of Transportation, which proposed the project, is called the North Houston Highway Improvement Project. It is scheduled to start any day now and stretches almost 25 miles and will cost at least $7 billion. The highway project does exactly what Alex alluded to, which is it significantly expands the highway. So the idea behind why the Texas Department of Transportation proposed this highway plan is to increase safety by widening each lane in the highway and to improve travel time. So really, if you live out in the suburbs in an area, for instance, called the Woodlands, which is a a, a suburb of the Houston area, you would be able to get to downtown about three minutes faster. The inequity in this project comes from who benefits and who doesn't benefit from the project. So again, if you live in the suburbs, you get a a widened lane. Uh, You will also have additional transit access from the lanes down the middle of the highway. Currently, there's one high occupancy vehicle lane that will expand into four, of which two of those will be transit one way, each way, all day, and two for high occupancy vehicles. That sounds great. If you live along the highway, which those communities that live along the stretch that will be impacted by this project range from 67% communities of color to 92% communities of color, what you benefit from this project looks very different. There is limited access to the connections for transit. There are far fewer ramps for you to get on. And the highway will expand 100 to 200 acres on each side, which leads to significant displacement. And by the Texas Department of Transportation's own figures, the project anticipates that it will displace at least 1,000 homes, of which are multifamily, single-family homes, owned, rented, public housing, all of that's included. So you're talking thousands of people in addition to tens of thousands of jobs. The last estimate estimated about 24,000 jobs that would be displaced. Significant flooding that's anticipated that our highway, our county continues to fight to ensure that new standards, especially after Hurricane Harvey, are put into place for the significant amount of concrete that would go to add significant um, acreage on either side as well as air quality. So the same communities of color that live along the highway and have already been displaced by previous highway projects, including the first round of this one, as well as other intersecting highways, have really poor air quality as we see all over the country. And the current estimates by the Texas Department of Transportation essentially say that the air quality impact will be zero because there is an assumption that everyone will be driving more efficient 
vehicles that could be electric and will reduce the carbon impact of this project. So you mentioned there's an assumption that the vehicles will be cleaner. Is that a fair assumption? You know, technically, cars are supposed to be getting cleaner under fuel economy standards, even though those have been weakened by the Trump administration compared to what the Obama administration wanted. But that said, uh, you know, is it fair to say that we can have more roads because, look, the vehicles are getting cleaner? I think it's a good goal to have for cars to be cleaner. I think the reality is that there are significant barriers for communities of color and low-income communities to access cleaner vehicles. And that includes everything from being able to afford more efficient vehicles to also looking at the reality of where there are charging stations, where are they placed and who has access to them. In the near term, we have to think of not only what are our goals, but how do we address the barriers to make sure we're making equitable investments so that we can actually reach those goals together and that some communities aren't left behind. This project makes a lot of assumptions about who has access to that clean alternative. And as such, I think there's an over-assumption on what the impact on our air quality will be. Alex, what are some of the ways that building back better can truly mean building back better for everyone? Because as Ani just described, it's one thing to have cleaner vehicles on the road, but it you know, doesn't really solve the problem if only a select portion of the population are using these cleaner, more efficient vehicles. So what are some of the tools in the, in the policy toolbox to help make sure that these uh, technologies are really benefiting everyone and not just an assumption that they will? Yeah, that's an excellent point, and Ani really hit the nail on the head. We need to make sure that any policies at the federal or state level that are put into place to increase uh, adoption of uh, zero-emission vehicles or cleaner vehicles, which Birdway absolutely supports, uh, everyone will be able to take advantage of those. So whether you're talking about rebates for buying a cleaner car, uh, a buyback program like Cash for Clunker, so you could trade in your old car for a newer, cleaner model, Uh, tax incentives to help people install electric vehicle charging stations in their homes and businesses, manufacturing incentives to help um, our automakers retool their facilities to make cleaner models. We need to make sure that everyone is capable of, you know, accessing those incentives and those programs. And not only that, we need to make sure that the public charging infrastructure that we're going to install on our public streets and on, on our highways, we need to make sure that we're making a conscious effort to make sure that that infrastructure is also built out in low-income communities and in communities of color. Because uh, as we know, those communities are more likely to have air quality issues and other issues resulting from some of the dirty infrastructure uh, that Ani mentioned that has caused a lot of air quality issues in those communities. We need to right those historical wrongs by making a very conscious effort to include those communities in better policies going forward. I've heard the line, fix it first. Is that what you're talking about here? Sort of fixing existing issues before tacking on new projects and new things? Absolutely. That is going to be a critical part of refocusing our federal and state spending on the projects that will create the most jobs, get our economy moving again, and help decarbonize transportation. As I mentioned, there's this phenomenon called induced demand, where if you keep building out more and more highways, you're just going to have more driving, more congestion, more emissions. So we need to focus on fixing it first. That means prioritizing, maintaining what we already have rather than or before we add things that we can't afford. We have a $500 billion backlog of highway and bridge repair projects. And then on top of that, there's the cost of keeping things that maybe don't need to be fixed right now 
keeping those things in good condition. So the money we're spending on highway expansion could really be put to much better use. And by the way, repair and maintenance projects also create more jobs for the money you're investing than highway expansion does. And they spend the money more quickly because you don't have to spend a lot of time and money on acquiring property for new lanes or going through extensive permitting and review processes. So a fix-it-first policy is especially appealing right now during this economic downturn and, and high unemployment. Um, now, to be clear, you know, fix-it-first doesn't mean we never build anything new. There are, of course, new highway projects that will be worthy of being built, but we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard than building just because we can. We need to make sure that new projects will really improve connectivity, that they won't lead to more congestion and more emissions, and that we can actually afford to maintain them for the entire service life. And one other thing I just want to add to this conversation because it's so important is that, you know, even as we're repairing and maintaining our infrastructure, we need to do a better job of making sure it works for everyone. You know, just like Ani said, too many of our highways and our, our viaducts and other infrastructure was built where it would disproportionately affect communities of color and low-income communities. And so we shouldn't just keep fixing those things and keeping them there forever because then we're just doubling down on those problems. We have to have serious conversations about where to move that infrastructure so we're no longer hindering the growth of those communities. So fix it first doesn't just mean we keep our infrastructure the way it is now, exactly the way it is now forevermore. Uh, we absolutely uh, need to make sure we're building new things where we need to and where we can afford them and moving things where they will be out of the way of communities that have been stifled for too long. Julia, I would like to add on to what Alex just mentioned. For the Fix It First, it helps us to also understand that there are a lot of things that we can put a dollar value on, but the historical and cultural impact of putting a highway through a community, there's no dollar value that we can put on that. And in Houston, those same patterns that we've seen across the country with highways going through communities of color, particularly Black communities and Latinx communities, those are being continued by this I-45 expansion project. And I think the most evident example is when you look at Independence Heights, which is a neighborhood in Houston, but it was also the first incorporated Freedman's town in the state of Texas. It is where Freedman, freed Black people went and established their own city in the state of Texas. And that community is going to be significantly impacted by this project, including losing the land that belongs to a church that was built when the community was still its own town. You can't get that back. There's nothing that will help reestablish that community and retain that piece of not just Houston history or Black history. That's part of all American history. The same community will be significantly impacted by flooding unless there's more done uh, to reduce the car to do reduce the cement footprint of this project. So the additional concrete that will be added will make it more difficult to protect that community from flooding that it already experiences over the last couple of years and has led to many people having to relocate, trying to relocate in the same community so that they can retain the historical ties to that community, but many being forced out and not just forced out into another nearby community. The reality is that the land is really precious. It's very close to downtown and they can't afford to go anywhere nearby. So they're going really far away, which is destroying the cultural ties and history of that community. Fix It First allows us where we've already made decisions to make the highway better, 
without having to perpetuate these same disparities that lead to destroying communities of color and the history of our country. Yeah, and we're speaking now a couple days after Hurricane Hannah hit the Houston area and, and areas of Texas, which I think just draws attention to the importance of getting infrastructure right, because it's a real life and death issue if you live in a flooded area or a place where bridges and roads break down. Uh, I know you are in Houston, Ani. Uh, how does something like a hurricane intersect with the issues that we're talking about here? Because those types of storms are only expected to get worse with climate change. So how do you think about that element of it? After Hurricane Harvey, the term impervious infrastructure became commonplace, which seems crazy because it's a very jargon, you know, jargony word that is used in a certain engineering or or flood mitigation sector. But everyone knew what that term was after Hurricane Harvey, and people understood that highways and other infrastructure that relies on these impervious structures, structures that don't allow the water to go through, that are hard materials like concrete or, you know, whatever it may be, um, are destroying our city. And we need more structures that allow for water to move through naturally. That resulted in a better understanding of the impact that highways have on our communities and the constant flooding we see. And many communities that never saw flooding before suddenly seeing flooding where they hadn't, especially along the 99, which is a a circular beltway around our previous beltway that suddenly saw a lot of flooding. And around I-10, the Katy Freeway that many people on this podcast may be familiar with because it is the poster child example of induced demand being the widest highway in the country. Many communities on either side of that saw flooding. And so we understand the relationship between people-made infrastructure and what it means for flooding. Also, there's the reality that highways, especially from the southern end of the city and going towards Galveston, are an avenue for uh, departures in in a hurricane or other disaster. And fix it first also becomes part of the conversation with that because many leaders, while they do or may want a wider highway, they also recognize that a wider highway or bigger infrastructure will take years to complete and cuts off the city or regions from safe access or departures during a hurricane or other disaster. Whereas fixing it means that you can fix it quickly and create that safe passage for people to leave in what is an area that every year sees some sort of flooding or hurricane that has serious impacts on our communities. Alex, let's get specific on policies. Uh, Third Way released a memo in May called Building Back Better, Investing in Clean Infrastructure to Drive Economic Recovery. And in it, you laid out a bunch of different policy tools that could fulfill this vision that we're talking about today. Can you outline some of them and the ones that you think are really important for lawmakers to be tackling and talking about right now as they craft stimulus legislation? Yeah, absolutely. And at Third Way, we've really taken pains to thread the needle in terms of connecting the policies that will get us on that path to decarbonizing transportation by mid-century with the policies that will help get our economy moving again by creating jobs and providing for long-term economic growth. One of the biggest policies is the one we were just talking about, Fix It First. As I mentioned earlier on, these are projects that 
will not only improve traffic safety uh, and make sure that we're making our infrastructure more resilient, just as Ani mentioned, but will also spend the money more quickly, create more jobs for the money invested, and help make sure that our infrastructure works for everyone, where highway expansion oftentimes does not uh, accomplish those goals. Another really important thing to be thinking about is investing in public transportation. Again, in terms of jobs per dollar, you can't do much better than investing in public transportation, not only uh, fixing and maintaining the transit uh, systems we have right now, but investing in public transportation expansion, whether it's uh, bus rapid transit or rail transit, where you have the density for that. So these are the kinds of infrastructure projects where, again, we are giving people uh, less fuel-intensive alternatives to get around, making sure that we are increasing access, especially for communities that, uh, you know, for a long time, our infrastructure was not serving well, and getting us on a path to, again, building our economy back better by investing in safer highways, uh, highways that we're fixing first rather than expanding, and public transportation. Ani, what do you think of when you think of your policy wish list? Is there, are there one or two policy items that you at Link Houston are really pushing for? And this could be at the local, state, or even federal level. One of the things that we are focusing on is exactly what Alex was starting to talk about, which is public transit. So as we've seen through COVID-19, the situation, the impact of the health pandemic on the economy has exacerbated inequities. And you particularly see that in the Black community where only half of Black Americans are currently employed. And in Houston, there is both the fear of public transit that we see across the country for how do you use it safely? Is it a good investment right now? And there's also the reality that people continue to use it, and especially in communities of color. So we see people still going to the grocery stores. Our metro is our public transit authority here in the Houston area has documented that they're operating at about half the ridership, but that's significantly greater than most other cities in the country. And that people who are using it are not only going to the grocery stores as customers, they're going to the grocery stores to work. And for our commuter buses, almost half of them are going to the Texas Medical Center, which is the largest medical facility in the world. So we know that transit is still this option that we need to move people in mass, not only for affordability in the near term, but also looking towards all of the climate goals that we as a region have committed to through Houston's recent climate action plan, our resilient Houston strategy, and a number of other commitments, as well as a long term transit plan. So looking ahead, our policy recommendations need to be focused on how do we keep public transit as an option, an alternative for people, and make it safe and easy to use? How do we invest in it and the new version of it that works for our economy, for people's needs to access, as well as the reality that we may need to still think of ways to improve safety and health on these forms of transportation? The other area where we are focusing right now is on aligning affordable housing and transportation. So again, thinking about the Houston context, we know it's a driving city. Everybody wants to drive or use their own car. And that idea is changing and has been documented for several years in the Houston Area Survey, which is a large survey that Rice University does annually through its Kinder Institute for Research. And it's documented that well a majority of Houstonians now want transit, walking, and biking options. 
Uh, it's also documented and seen or reflected rather in our transit authorities long-term plan, which passed with two-thirds support showing that Houstonians do want these other options. But it's one thing to have an option and another thing to have it work. So if we really want to think about how people can reduce their costs in their household from what appears to be affordable housing that's offset by a great distance of travel and a large portion of a household spending uh, well over 20% in Houston going towards transportation. To make life affordable in Houston, we have to think of new ways to help people move, and that includes being able to reduce how far they have to go. So that means looking at where affordable housing is and where affordable transportation investments go in the future. So aligning affordable transportation and uh, affordable housing, as well as improving public transit, specifically equitable implementation of our long-term plans, are where we're most focused right now in the Houston area from the Link Houston perspective. Just to put a finer point on it, I guess, Ani, do you have any last sort of anecdotes you can share of people who live in the Houston region and what they're talking about when it comes to their needs on transportation and how that intersects with sustainability uh, writ large? Are there sort of people you talk to in your community who have certain pain points around this? Maybe they want an EV and they can't afford it or they just simply can't get to work now. Are there any sort of stories you can tell that really illustrate what we're talking about here? There are so many. (laughs) But one, I think, think really starts to hone in on this is so one of our most solid advocates that we work with someone who's been an activist in this space and has uh, been a supporter of our work is someone who is aging uh, does not have access to a vehicle and can't benefit from things like delivery services because they don't go to this person's neighborhood. There is limited transit access, and especially right now when transit has gone down in frequency and service to offset the lack of of revenue, uh, there's even less access to get to the grocery store. So while we have lots of things set up in COVID-19 to have um, access to testing. The testing is done through drive-through. Food distribution is done through drive-through. Um, continued transit service has limitations, and delivery of food or restaurants doesn't go to every neighborhood. That's this person's reality. And relying on friends and family members to help get access to food is something this person has never had to do. But right now, this person has to right now because there are no other options. And that just gets back to our way of thinking. We put too much clout into what a car can deliver. And a car is not everything. And we have to think of other ways for people to move. The reality that some people, whether it's a disability, aging, income, or just a flat-out desire to not have that sort of carbon footprint, don't drive. That's such a good point about just the different lived experiences. And I feel like that's so critical as we really pull back the curtain on what's happening in the country as a result of COVID-19. I think everyone, I think there are a lot of different experiences. And for one person, it's the inconvenience of, you know, not getting to go on a trip one year. And for others, it's a true matter of not being able to access daily goods and needs like healthy food. Um, and so it's it's helpful to just sort of hear about those experiences and really try to understand what it's like for for those individuals. 
Alex, I want to go to you for the final note here on prospects for these green and clean transportation solutions to be actually enacted. We're speaking here in late July. Uh, We're going to be talking about the concept of a green stimulus and a green recovery a lot over the next six months. Uh, But I'm curious what your, you know, your crystal ball is telling you right now. How are these specifics being worked into today's policy conversation? Or are they really being left to memos and thought pieces and not really getting uptake in Congress just yet? Well, this is a perfect time to be talking about these issues, because just as you mentioned, a lot of folks on the Hill and all over the country are talking about how we bring our country back and how we bring our economy back from this economic downturn and and COVID-19. Now, the good news is that uh, just recently, the House of Representatives passed a a service reauthorization bill, a bill to reauthorize our federal highway and transit programs as part of a larger infrastructure package called the Moving Forward Act, which includes a lot of the goals and policies we've talked about today. It includes a fix it first provision. It says, you know, state DOTs, if you want to build a new highway, you have to prove to us that you can afford to maintain that new highway segment or that new overpass, whatever the case may be, for as long as it's there so that we're not just building, 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 but then letting things fall into disrepair because we can't afford to take care of them. It includes a massive increase in funding for public transportation, especially for uh, helping transit agencies purchase low emission transit buses and the chargers they need to keep those going. More funding for complete streets, which would help make sure that in addition to driving, people can safely use our streets for walking, biking, and accessing public transportation. It also requires states to measure the greenhouse gas emissions on their transportation networks and take steps to reduce them. And very similarly to that, it requires states to measure how well their infrastructure actually provides people connectivity and access. So rather than rewarding simply how much people are driving in a state, it's actually looking at how well and how easily can people access the jobs and services they need. So there's a lot of really good things happening right now, we have to make sure that we continue pushing for those right policies to be included in whatever ends up passing. And so unfortunately, I don't have a crystal ball to look at or uh, an envelope to hold up to my forehead like Ms. Cleo and, and somehow know what how things are going to shake out. But, uh, you know, I have a very strong feeling that if House leaders continue to push for the right policies that will help us decarbonize transportation and improve access Uh, for people who, just like we've been talking about today, have for too long been left out of our economy and left out of our decisions about how we build our infrastructure and where we build it, then we really can build it back better. Great. Well, thank you both so much for uh, speaking with me today. Ani, Alex, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. And that's our first episode in the Relief Rescue Rebuild series made possible by the Think Tank Third Way. Be sure to hit subscribe and tune in next time.